Okay, Ezra, chapter 1. and Esther. 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 Thank you. (laughs) Esther, chapter 1. This morning we're actually picking up again at verse 13. So let's let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for this story of how you took care of your people. um, And you did it providentially in the... even though the book does not mention your name, you're there in every page as we see how you work out the details of um, fulfilling your plan, of keeping uh, watch over your people and protecting them. And we just uh, look at that as being an encouragement to us when, uh, when we don't necessarily see you working, but we can know that you are working. And uh, we just pray that as we go through this book that will be impressed on our hearts and our minds. Pray you'll bless our time together now as we study your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for reading this morning, we will start at verse 10 and read through the whole first chapter. In verses 10 and 14, we have lists of seven Persian names. You can skip over those if you get those verses. Oh, you're going to try. Go ahead. (coughs) On the seventh day... When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitsa, Harbona, Bitsa, and Abaxa, Zephyr, and Perkis, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Rashti before the king <coughs> in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and was delivered by the eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger was Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew the law and justice. And were closed to him. So keep all these other guys of seven witnesses of virtue, media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vishadi according to the law? Because she did obey the command of King Asherus, brought to her by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, <coughs> causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Nubia, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and pleasure. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, Great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and princes, and the king did as Benham proposed. 
Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man shall be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Okay, so last week um, we saw King Ahasuerus, who is known also as King Xerxes, that's his Greek name, um, he was showing off all his power and wealth to the people. And the speculation is that he was trying to gain support because he was going to invade Greece, attack Greece. And uh, so he was showing that, you know, we have a huge and powerful nation and we can undertake this war and, 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 be, and win. So he was trying to gain their support. And this, this whole six-month uh, uh, episode of him showing off the wealth ended with a seven-day drinking party with all the inhabitants of Susa. And at this time, at the end of it, he ordered Vashti to come and show off her beauty to them. You know, I'm, I'm the king, I have all this wealth, and look at this, I have the most beautiful wife. Uh, just wanted to show her off. And she refused. And, you know, looking back, we would say she's probably right to refuse. Um, but the king uh, responded with wrath and anger at, when she rejected his command and refused to command. So today we're going to look at his response, and starting in verses uh, 13 through 15. It says, And the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice, and were close to him. There's Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place of the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. So, from history, we know that uh, a king like Ahasuerus could basically kill anyone he wanted to for any reason he wanted to. Uh, he was also somewhat cruel and capricious. But in this case, he restrains his reaction, um, even though he was kind of in a drunken rage at this time. And so he, instead of taking immediate revenge, he seeks counsel from his advisors. And there's a couple of descriptions given to them. Uh, first, it says, wise men who understood the times. Um, and the commentaries pretty much agree that this refers to astrologers. They would look at the stars and the zodiac, and they would tell him what's going to happen. So basically it was, it was telling the future through uh, the stars. <clears throat> Let's look at Daniel chapter 4. And we'll see something similar. So in Daniel chapter 4 we have, um, this is Nebuchadnezzar, this is the kingdom of Babylon, which was just uh, prior to the kingdom of Persia. Daniel 4, would someone like to read verses 6 and 7 for us? So I made a decree that 
all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, and they could not make known to me its interpretation. Okay, so it included astrologers. But one of the things you see here, all these different people that he has as advisors are all somehow fortune tellers, mm -hmm. uh, magicians, conjurers. Uh, I have some notes that the Chaldeans, that term referred to astrologers, but uh, we also have diviners. But they all have some way of uh, foretelling the future and, and telling the king, well, what's the consequences of your decisions? And so they could advise him on the best decision <clears throat> to make. So um, his advisors uh, here, you know, basically the first part, you know, they knew the times. They were fortune tellers. They could tell him what was going to happen. They also, as it says in the verse, end of verse 13, um, they knew law and justice. So this is legal counsel. These are the lawyers. Um, and they would be able to tell him what he could do and what he could not do under Persian law. And we have, with these two dis different descriptions, it almost looks like, you know, is, is this two different groups? You've got your fortune tellers, and over here you've got your lawyers. And actually, um, the commentaries pretty much agree there was just this one group, but they had both of these talents. They could tell him the future, but they also were well-versed in the law and, and knew what he could and could not do under the law. And all these names are all Persian names. They are... Persians, they are the uh, advisors to the king. Uh, you know, it says they had access to the king's presence, um, meaning they could probably come to the king anytime they wanted to. They didn't have to necessarily be summoned. They could ask for an appointment and come into his presence. Um, they also sat in the first place in their kingdom. So after the king, these were the highest authorities in the kingdom, these seven men. Um, <clears throat> this number seven seems to have been special for, uh, for the Persians. Let's look back in Ezra chapter 7. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 7. And this concerns Darius, who was Ahasuerus' father. Ezra chapter 7, would someone like to read verse 14 for us? For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Okay. So here we have uh, seven, yeah, seven counselors. Now this actually is a, uh, a decree of Artaxerxes not Darius, so it's Ahasuerus' son, not his father here, but we have the seven counselors. And looking back in our passage in verse 10, how many eunuchs were there? Seven. So apparently they thought that was the perfect number uh, for a group of counselors or, or people. So he poses his question in verse 15, and it's very nice and succinct, very precise. Um, and he says, okay, King Ahasuerus issued a command to Queen Vashti 
and he, ordered, he gave it through the eunuchs. Um, and she disobeyed the command. And the point is that there's seven eunuchs, so they have plenty of uh, witnesses to, to testify that yes, she received the command, and yes, she disobeyed it. Um, so he's basically asking them, uh, what does the law say? What should we do with her? Uh, this is not right. Um, and so he goes to these seven princes, seven counselors, um, and asks them for their input on this. And we see this in verses 16 through 18. It says, And in the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. And this day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So this is, uh, there's probably not a specific law that covers this instance of the queen refusing to come into the king's presence. So these wise men are going to have to uh, basically deliberate, come up with what do they think is a proper response to this? And then, um, you know, what's the course of action they should take? And, and then they'd also have to sell the idea to the whole group of princes and to the king, come up with something that they'd all agree on. And so we're given here Mamukin's proposal. He's one of the seven that was listed earlier. <clears throat> so he comes in and he, he makes this uh, proposal. We're not told if this was the only proposal. We're not told if it was the first proposal. But this is the one that uh, ultimately they accepted at the end. And his proposal basically is to take Queen Vashti and make her an example of her to all the women in, in the empire, to make her an example. Now, what could have been uh, a more personal issue between the king and his queen, he basically makes it a kingdom-wide social issue. So he takes something that could be handled as a small issue and he makes it a national issue. He says, Vashti has not just sinned against the king, but against all the princes and all the people of the kingdom. And when he says all the people of the kingdom, he says he really means all the men of the kingdom. <laughs> so, um, you know, how can this be? What did Vashti do to all the princes? She didn't do anything to the princes. She didn't do anything to the people of the kingdom. Um, and what she did was it was not necessarily well known even to all the people who were at the banquet um, so why is it blown up so big um, but he goes on and he makes the argument that this story those who do know it will spread it 
They'll spread it throughout uh, all the people of Susa. And then from there, it'll go out across the whole kingdom. And all the women in the empire will hear about this. And they'll say, well, if Vashti didn't obey her husband, the king, why should I obey my husband? Um, it also t will be part of the nobility. He talks about the ladies in verse 18. This refers to the ladies of women of higher standing. Um, and again, they'll, they'll hear this and they'll disobey the princes. Well, these seven men are worried, well, my, my wife's not going to obey me anymore. Um, and, and the whole land, the whole empire will be filled with disrespect and discord. And, and the women will all rebel and there'll be nothing less than a complete social upheaval and a national disaster. Sounds a little bit blown out of proportion, don't you think? Sounds like a lot of what you hear on social media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. News travel staff. News travel staff, yeah. Um, what do you think? There's some speculation from the commentaries that there's a lot of politics involved here. Queen mm -hmm. Vashti had access to the king. The seven princes had access to the king. Now, who is he going to listen to? If Vashti says one thing and the princes say something else, there's a little bit of a power struggle here, is what the, the speculation is. Um, and so this is their opportunity to get rid of her. She's the opposition. Um, we mentioned before, uh, Herodotus writes about a, a queen, a, a mistress, and that Vashti possibly is a mistress. Well, she was kind of known through his writings as being a pretty cruel, despotic sort of a queen. Um, and uh, influenced some power in the government there. Now again, this is based on <clears throat> what the Greek historian Herodotus wrote. The Greeks did not like the Persians. And so when you read what a Greek historian writes about the Persian king and queen, it's a little bit like listening to what CNN says about the Trump family. They hate them. They're going to make everything look worse than it really is. You know, they're not going to, you're not necessarily getting a fair picture of what Queen Amestris might have been like, but... If, if she did half of what Herodotus said, then she was part of the power struggle here. So going on to the next uh, couple of verses, looking at verses 19 and 20, we'll see what Mamukan advises him, the king to do. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of the Persians and, the, and media that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti should no more come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. And when the king's edict, which he shall make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So, Mamukin advises Ahasuerus to issue a royal edict concerning Queen Vashti. 
And he notes here, under the laws of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be revoked. So let's turn to Daniel again. Daniel chapter 6. We have a similar statement made. Now in Daniel chapter 6, Babylon has been captured or defeated by the Persians. And this is Darius the Mede. This is not Darius the Great. Darius the Mede served under King Cyrus. Got two different Dariuses. So, uh, but he's still part of, he's, he's serving into the, the Persian Empire. Someone like to read verses 8 and 9. Daniel chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Okay, so this is one of those other places where we've got this warning. You know, this once you sign this decree, it can't be changed. Do you remember what this decree here in Daniel was about? Mm-hmm. They could not pray to God. Okay, Daniel had been praying to God. Yeah, the king had issued, again, with the um, help of these uh, uh, advisors, um, they had talk to king into issuing an edict that says you, people cannot pray to anyone other than the king. So they were being told they had to pray to King Darius, who was, or at that time, governor or king, ruler over the uh, province of Babylon. Um, and if you read the first part, you realize there's a power struggle going on. And so, you know, this is a way of trying to get rid of Daniel so they could restore gain power, and they wanted the edict written in such a way that it could not be changed, so they would basically trap the king into doing something that would give them more power, get rid of the opposition, and it couldn't be changed. And we go back to the book of Esther, and that looks a lot like what's going on here. Um, You've got the princes who are wanting to get... uh, Queen Vashti moved out of a position where she has access to the king. And remember back uh, when we were talking about his advisors, um, in verse 14 it mentions them and they said, who had access to the king's presence? And they want to take that access away from Vashti so that they have the influence and the power. Now, it's kind of nice in this case because in Daniel's case, they wanted him thrown into the lion's den and killed. Here, they're not recommending that Vashti be executed. So, um, banishment would be um, sufficient to get her out of position of power. Now, there's something else going on historically. Um, Amestris is the mother of Artaxerxes who is going to be the next king. And based on ages and dates, he may have either been just born as a new baby or she may have been pregnant about this time. So um, 
you know, killing the mother of the next king was going a little too far. You know, banishing her, yeah, they could do that, but having her killed might have been uh, more than than the king would accept. Um, but as it turns out, you know, when Artaxerxes is on the throne now, she's the queen mother, and she probably has access again to the king. <clears throat> so Mamukan, in order to sell this uh, suggestion, he goes on to describe, well, what's the results of this edict? Well, word is going to go out that Vashti has been duly punished for her disobedience, and all the wives throughout the kingdom will honor and obey their husbands. And this will save the Persian Empire. Um, and notice there's also a little bit of flattery in here. In verse 20, it says, He shall make it heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands. You know, Kings like to be flattered. You know, if you're trying to get them to agree with you, throw in some flattery. Um, okay, so going on to verse 21. And this word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. So this sounded good. They unanimously approved Mamukin's plan. Um, Several of the commentaries suggested that this is still right at the end of this drunken party and they may have been intoxicated and so they didn't give this a lot of critical thought. <coughs> <coughs> Sounds good, let's do it. You know, um, People tend to get into a lot of trouble when they're intoxicated because they don't really think through what they're doing. Um, so they agree to it. And then going on to verse 22. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master of his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. So the king carries out this plan, and since it is a <coughs> new Persian law, it has to be sent out to all 127 provinces, um, and they say, okay, you, you know, you're scattered throughout a large part of the world. They, there's many different languages, many different scripts. It has to be written in each one so the people clearly understand it. And so that's how they sent their laws out. And so the edict specifies two things. One is that the husband is to be the master of his house. And that seems to be the main thing that... Um, Mamukan was trying to get across. Now the second part of this is a little vague. Uh, it says, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. <coughs> what does that mean? And kind of the consensus from the commentaries is that you may have a bilingual household and this commanded that they speak the husband's language in the house, not the wife's. So if the wife and the husband speak, have different language backgrounds, they speak the husband's language in the house. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 13. 13, 13. yeah. That's just back a couple pages. Nehemiah chapter 13. 
Someone like to read verses 23 and 24. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Okay. So the, the ones who had married here were all Jewish men. Could their children speak Hebrew? No. Because they were not speaking the language of the husband in their household. And so they were losing the, the, um, the Jewish culture, the nationality here. And so what this uh, edict from the king says is, okay, uh, we want the husband's language spoken so that his uh, culture is the one that gets passed down to his children. <clears throat> So, as one commentary noted, how are they going to enforce this? <laughs> um, is it really going to make a difference? You know, I'm thinking in all the different households, you know, if, if you had like a, 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 like our model for a Christian home, where the husband is to love his wife and the wife is to submit to the husband. Whatever happened in Susa is a, totally irrelevant. You know, they're going to continue on the way they've been going. On the other hand, if you've got a, a wife who doesn't do what her husband tells her to do, who's always rebellious, you know, and wears the pants in the family, she doesn't care either. <laughs> it's not going to change. And even if, you know, even if the edict goes out, how do you enforce it? And no one's going to enforce this thing. Um, you know, when we were going through all the COVID things and, and we were having to, you know, wear masks out in public, that's one thing that they could seize, you know, they could kind of enforce that. Suppose the, you know, the governor said, no, you have to wear masks in the home too. Mm -hmm. They're not going to come and knock on your door and check and make sure everybody's wearing masks. It's just not going to be enforced. So... Here, basically, they've passed a law that is just a waste of time because it's not going to be enforced. It can't be enforced. <clears throat> okay. We get to start chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. This phrase, after these things, indicates that some time interval has gone by. So we've got a gap here between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Let's see if we can figure out what, how long the gap is. So go back to chapter 1. Someone like to read verse 3. Okay, so this is the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. He showed off his wealth for six months, and then he had that last banquet when Vashti was banned. Okay, so this is either sometime in his third year, or perhaps it goes into his fourth year. Now let's look at chapter 2, and would someone like to read verse 16? 
taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Te Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Okay, so now we're in the seventh year. So we've gone from probably late in the third year to late in the seventh year. That's four years later. And then also, let's look in chapter 2. Someone would like to read verse 12 for us. And now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was a regular period in the beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointment for the women. Okay, so they, sp they spent 12 months in this beautification process, so we were four years down, now we come back up, so we're about three years after Vashti is banned. So we got about a three-year gap here. Why? Why would it take three years after banning Vashti before he started looking for a replacement? Can you remember from some of the history that we've talked about? What's he doing for those three years? Trying to get troops together, isn't it? He's getting troops together for... Greece, yeah, he's invading Greece. <clears throat> this is, you can read about Xerxes invading Greece. So he's got three years that he, you know, we've got stories of, uh, I mentioned uh, Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans withstood the Persian army. That is where Xerxes is attacking Greece. He goes through Greece. Um, he takes revenge on Athens. He burns Athens. Um, that was what his father Darius had wanted to do before he died, but he left it to his son Ahasuerus to do. So he burns the city of Athens, uh, including the Acropolis, which we've all seen pictures of this temple on the, on the, up on the um, hill. But in around 480 BC, his navy lost a battle at sea against the, the Greek navy, and they did use the navy to supply the troops, they, as well as fighting, uh, but it was their kind of their supply line. And then the next year, he suffered a defeat at a place called Salamis. And so having lost his navy and having his army been defeated, he retreated back to Persia and back to Susa. The Greek historian Herodotus, again, wrote... Quote, sought consolation in his harem after his defeat at Salamis. So he went back home to, after the war for some feminine comfort. And that's what leads up to this verse here. He's looking to replace his queen and, and uh, it fits. This, this is one of those places where the Herodotus's account just fits well in with the book of Esther. They kind of fill in the gaps in each other's accounts here. Um, so at this point, we, you know, we're, we see two events that God has providentially orchestrated so far to set the stage for Esther. One, Queen Vashti has been deposed. So this creates an opening for Esther. 
And then second, King Ahasuerus has come home from war, defeated, and he's looking for consolation in his harem. So he's actively seeking a replacement for Vashti. Um, and it always amazes me how, in this case, God is directing human history and he doesn't leave evidence. He doesn't leave tracks. He, you know, we know he's there. We know he works in our lives. We can look in hindsight and see what he's done. But he doesn't necessarily make it obvious. Um, let's, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. This is a very... Romans 8, 28. Some of you can probably quote this. You can read it when you get there. Romans 8, 28. Yeah, I like this phrase. He causes things to work together, ultimately for his purpose. You know, sometimes people tell you, don't worry, things will work out. Well, that God works things out. It doesn't say he, you know, um, he actually controls every bit and piece. He says he works it all out. He, he, he controls the circumstances when necessary to get the results that he wants. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and someone likes to read verse 11 for us. Okay, so it's talking about believers and, and are predestined to be in, um, adopted into God's family. <coughs> but it also mentions again, God is the one who, he works all things after his counsel. He works things out. Um, and this, uh, this is... Uh, how God's plan is brought into effect, but at the same time, if you if you <coughs> put too much of an emphasis on God controlling everything, then it's awful hard to explain um, where sin comes from, <laughs> apart from God. God does not cause the sin. But he's got a whole world full of sinful, evil people doing all their sinful things, and he works out the details to get his plan accomplished. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's miraculous how he does that. Um, another example we won't look at is Joseph going to Egypt and having prepared a place for the family to come during the drought and the famine and he basically says God you know the, his brothers meant it for evil but he said God caused this to bring about the present result and that's really the theme of this book is God providentially working with the details, with the circumstances, so that his plan is fulfilled. And we don't necessarily see him doing it. That picture is orchestra. Yeah, the director does this, but, but everybody else is doing this. <laughs> They're doing the detail work, yeah. So. 
Okay, so Ahasuerus returns from Greece. He comes home to an empty house. He remembers uh, uh, that Vashti refused to obey a direct order. He banned her from his presence. And now what is he going to do about it? So that's where we'll pick up next week. So. John, would you like to close some prayer for us this morning? Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day and thank you that you brought us together and thank you for the, the study that Daryl's doing on Esther and just pray that uh, you open our eyes to what you want us to learn from this. And we also pray for Robert as he gives the message today and our entire worship service as we're going from Lord, we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.